Welcome to Elixir Mix, your weekly Elixir podcast talking with members of the community. My name is Mark Erickson, and on our panel today, we have Josh Adams. Hey there. Michael Reese. Hi, friends. And today we're joined with our special guest, Sophie DiBenedetto. Sophie, we're glad to have you on. Uh, You've uh, recently been talking at like the big Elixir. You spoke at ElixirConf 2019, and glad you could take some time and, and kind of visit with us. So why don't you give a little background as to kind of where you're working and kind of what problems you're solving? Yeah, totally. Uh, Thanks for having me. Really happy to uh, have a chance to chat with you guys today. So currently I am on the engineering team at the Flatiron School, which you may have heard of. It's a programming bootcamp and we started out uh, years ago. We did a soft, we had a software engineering program that we offered and I was a student there. But now we do so much more. We have a cybersecurity offering. We have a design offering, data science. Uh, so it's definitely really grown in terms of what we offer, what we teach, and uh, where we're at, too. When we first started, we were in New York. Now we're around the country. We're in London. We're online. Uh, so that's pretty exciting. And on the engineering side, I work on our uh, learning management platform and our school management platform. So basically just like the suite of tools and applications that we provide our teachers, our students, and the business side of our organization to do all the things that you have to do to run a school, like admit people and deliver content to them and track their progress and all of that. And uh, a lot of what we do to support those platforms is in Elixir, which has been really exciting and rewarding. And uh, coming up, we are, well, we've already sort of started working on uh, like an eventing system that is backed by Elixir and some hand-rolled Elixir libraries that wrap RabbitMQ. And we've just kind of started getting some of that stuff out the door and it's been really exciting and rewarding to work on. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. That's awesome. I didn't realize you guys had kind of branched out so uh, globally outside of the U.S. And, and doing an online offering too. That's really exciting. Yeah. One thing I would love to hear just a little bit more about before we dive into the code topics at hand. Um, a couple of years ago, I ran an apprenticeship uh, for um, a company I was working at. And I, we got applications from people. It was targeted at people coming out of boot camps or self-taught developers who were looking for a first technical job. And, um, and so I looked at resumes and applications from like 125 people. And at the time, I just remember being blown away at the people who were coming out of the Flatiron School. And the level of quality just was uh, significantly better than most of the schools, um, other schools that I had gotten in contact with. I'm curious, as someone who went through that program and and now being on the other side of that, what do you think Flatiron does that's different than other code boot camps or, uh, or other ways of kind of learning to code? 
Yeah. So first of all, I'm thrilled to hear you say that you were so impressed by our graduates and I'm not at all surprised. So I was a student there and then I also taught uh, the program that I had graduated from for almost two years before leaving, um, joining the engineering side of things. So I definitely have some thoughts on kind of what makes us different and what makes our graduates stand out. And I think it's really two things. I think it's the community, like we have such a talented and dedicated group of teachers and community managers and leaders, and they just do such an amazing job of creating a place where students really work so closely together and support each other uh, and collaborate so much that it just creates this environment that I think engenders like a, a true love for for coding, for working with others and for solving problems together. And I think that kind of love makes a huge difference in the way that people approach problems and kind of commit themselves to this type of learning. And I think the other thing is, and I'm, I'm sure you've maybe heard this phrase before or elsewhere, which is that we don't really teach our students to code like in Ruby or to build a Rails app or to write JavaScript so much as we teach them how to learn. So it's less about, you know, we can't, right? We can't teach you everything you're going to need to know in your entire career as a, as a developer. No one can because it changes constantly. But what we can teach you how to, what to do is not to be afraid of what you don't know. We can teach you what to do when you have no idea what to do. We can teach you how not to shy away from problems. And a way that I used to phrase it to my students is like, you know, this feeling that you're feeling right now, you feel probably kind of lost. You feel confused. You feel frustrated that you don't know what's going on. You feel like you're kind of lost in space. And what we teach you is how to actually seek that out and how to recognize that that's actually a really beautiful place to be. And I think if you're turning out graduates that you know, aren't afraid of what they don't know and aren't afraid of feeling totally confused and frustrated, at least some of the time, those are people that are going to really succeed. Yeah, I really like that uh, philosophy. That's really good. It's yeah. true. I, I, I tend to live in that place a long time, a lot of time, you know, it's like I'm trying to yeah. feel like, what the heck is wrong? What is yeah. going on? And then you have yeah. that little epiphany and you're like, I get it. I, you mm -hmm. know, and and you, you've grown and you've uh, learned something new. So Yeah, you can get cool. kind of addicted to it too. <laughs> that feeling. Yeah, I would agree with that. A lot of people I've worked with, um, they end up leaving jobs, not because it's not a good place to work, not because their compensation is not great, but because they work there long enough and they feel like they know the tools, they know the process, and they, they just want something different so that they can learn again. Um, and so I think you're right. A lot of developers do kind of get addicted to that, that feeling of the breakthrough of the aha moment, and they just, they start to seek it out. I mean, I, that's interesting also to hear because at the time I was, um, we were trying to structure our apprenticeships so that we hired a, bun a group of apprentices all at once. And we gave them, um, they basically used each other as the first line of uh, defense and then had a, a dedicated mentor for each of them individually. But very often they were working in pairs or small groups and they would go to one of their mentors to help unblock them uh, and continue to move their project forward. And um, they could kind of load balance between all the different mentors. Um, and that allowed us to bring in a, a bigger group than we otherwise would have been able to support. And it was really cool to see that um, as they worked together on problem solving, um, how often they were able to just unstick each other. And they kind of got to be the rubber duck for each other. They got to bring each of their different backgrounds to the, to the problem. It was pretty amazing what a, a group of uh, excited people can do is just kind of a beautiful thing to watch. So um, that's really cool to hear. 
I know that um, one of the other topics that we wanted to talk about today, obviously some of these recent talks you've given were around live view. And I'm wondering, uh, can you give us just a little bit of a background first on what's your use case for live view at the Flatiron School? And then how has your experience been overall? Yeah, so um, it's been it's been really fun to work with live view. Our use case for it, we started out with something super, super tiny that we put into production um, about maybe a month or two ago. So this would have been right after the first official release of LiveView. So we wanted to, you know, play it kind of safe, like super new technology, not uh, exactly battle tested as a feature in its own right, although certainly built on top of things that are very battle tested. Um, so we were using it for like an admin page that would show uh, to our education ops team some roster of our available cohorts, right? Like our classes of students. and. Um, this is a process where users would go in, admins would go in, make a new cohort that students could be admitted into. It would redirect them to you know, the show page for that. And then we wanted that to live update when our system received a message back from another system it was communicating with that this cohort was now you know, finished being created, open for, for enrollment, let's say. So that felt like a, a nice, fun use case to start with because it's admin facing, so it has a nice small footprint. And if you know something were to go horribly awry, with live view or whatever it's uh, not impacting our students directly so that's always nice and it was also just a really nice discrete uh, thing that we wanted to solve for just one update to one portion of the page based on one scenario that could occur so that was kind of cool um, we were excited about it because we were able to incorporate PubSub with LiveView. We wanted to, uh, like a background worker is running, and then when that wraps up, it's going to uh, publish a message that the LiveView process is subscribing to, and this was going to update the page. And, uh, you know, we had I had a proof of concept for this. I wrote an article for Elixir School, kind of playing around with these ideas, got PubSub working, didn't deploy it, you know, just a little side project for a blog post, not going to bother to deploy it. Everything works great. PubSub, LiveView, everybody gets along, gave a talk at ElixirConf, yes, these things go great together. I've never deployed it, whatever, I'm sure it's fine. And uh, then we come to deploy this, this kind of PubSub LiveView integration, and it just doesn't really work, like maybe 50% of the time. Sometimes you get the message uh, over PubSub and it updates the page, and like sometimes you don't. We couldn't figure out any pattern. It wasn't that it would always work the first time and not the second. It wasn't that it would always work with like a certain type of message and not another type. We couldn't figure this out for like, honestly, weeks and eventually we just decided, all right, we're not going to use PubSub in production. We'll stick with LiveView, but we'll just, we'll pull the database. It's fine. It's not a big deal. You know, it's broken, whatever. Um, and obviously that's like the worst feeling, right? When you spend so long trying to figure something out, especially when it's something that you've, I don't know, published things about and spoken publicly about and you're like secretly, you can't get it working in production. Uh, and then when I was preparing uh, a, a slightly different LiveView talk for the big elixir i was looking at my slide that was talking about just kind of almost like a throwaway comment like oh yeah phoenix PubSub, the pg2 adapter is distribution friendly provided you know you configure the nodes to communicate with one another so i thought oh wait so <laughs> the problem was that we had our app deployed onto two uh server uh two servers two instances in a aws ecs cluster 
And uh, not only had we not actually configured the ports for communication, like for the release version of the application, which like helps, but also we didn't have the security group set up for the cluster so that there could be communication over this range of ports between the two nodes. Um, yeah, so we figured it out, but that sucked. <laughs> we got there eventually. I will say AWS is uh, a wonderful tool. Uh, it's a platform, right? And that's where uh, we're running our stuff in production. But yeah, it's like when you're coming new to that stuff, the security groups, the, the zones, and all these, all these concepts and these, uh, the terms that they use, you have no idea. It's just so much to learn. So yeah. I, I totally understand the uh, not picking up all the pieces and knowing where to go in the UI to figure out what to do. I've been there. Also, shout, shout out to LibCluster. If you yes. find yourself in a similar situation. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, I, I did the same thing. My first production app, um, I think I, I had tried to use LibCluster in it and it was actually working initially when I first pushed it out. And then like two weeks later, I got a bug report. Hey, like when I, when this thing happened, it didn't automatically update my budget number over here. And I was like, what, how, how did I miss a message? Um, and, and so I went into it and some firewalls had been added, um, since when I first deployed the app and tested it. And, uh, so we had to like document the fact that these nodes needed to talk and I'll drop a few quick articles that were really helpful to me. Um, these were written by, uh, Magnus Henock over at Erling, uh, Erling Solutions. And he wrote a pair of articles. Um, it's talking about some of the things that got added to Erling distribution that allow you to kind of configure the way it happens um, and what tools you're getting used. It was really helpful for me just to kind of think about what is involved there. Um, so if you, if other people listening to this podcast find themselves in a position of like, oh, how am I going to make this work? What are my options? Just a couple of good articles to read over that to give you an overview of what needs to happen. Um, not only like what's the default way that Erling distribution happens, but what are just like the necessary steps that I might be able to substitute something else in? And also I'll, I'll drop a lot, uh, a link to LibCluster because that has also been extremely helpful for getting this just working out of the box um, in a Kubernetes cluster for me. I, I will say um, also a shout out to logging because it's like LibCluster will log when it can't connect. And so if you have monitoring or, or logging, then you can kind of see what's going on. But like one of those things that's, that's that is a different thing about Elixir, right? That it, that it can be clustered. It's like if you're talking about Ruby or Node or Python or something, they, each node is really independent and it's a load balancer that just sends traffic to it and they don't know anything about the, uh, each other. And, but with Elixir, they can know about each other and you can get all these other benefits. So it just becomes a more of an operations awareness about how do I make it so they can talk together? How do I make it so that they, nothing else can talk to them? They're still in like a, a little secured like DMZ area. So yeah, uh, that's a fun topic to bring up. So coming back to a previous topic uh, where we were talking about like the whole idea of uh, learning something new, challenging yourself and kind of having those aha moments. As you were digging into Live View for your more recent talk where you're talking about kind of digging under the hood, I'd love to hear kind of what some of those uh, aha moments were or just kind of what, what that discovery process was like. Yeah, totally. So I was reading through the... Well, actually, I'll take a step back. So this was the talk I gave at the Big Elixir was a new version of a similar talk I gave uh, at Elixir Conf in, in August. And most of that talk, that original talk, was kind of predicated upon kind of like a fun, slightly crazy and very labor intensive workaround 
that I had created when working with an earlier pre-release version of LiveView to do something that seems really, really simple, which just create like a little JS effect on the front end where you have like a chat window scrolling down appropriately. And I found in this earlier version of LiveView, the pre-release version, that I couldn't make that happen, at least easily. I couldn't get this hook into this moment in time when the UI was going to update and just adjust this chat window just a little bit. So I, I, you know, I don't know if you guys know this about me. I'm not a huge fan of writing front end code. So of course my response to this challenge was to like throw absolutely so much back end code at this. <laughs> like, oh, well, I'll just hijack the live view stuff of that, but then we could talk to each other. So I guess we need a registry and then we'll send, you know, all this crazy stuff. And it was fun and I got it working. And uh, I thought, okay, this would make a neat talk. Hopefully this isn't like sort of the official thing that you would have to do to enact a feature like this, but it was fun to figure out. And then the day before I gave this talk, I was uh, participating with some other folks leading a workshop at ElixirConf as part of uh, Elixir School. And I was talking a little bit about LiveView. I was talking a little bit about kind of hinting at where my talk was going to go the next day. And like one of the guys raises his hand. And I guess he had done the other LiveView workshop the day before. And he's like, oh yeah, um, have you heard of hooks? And I was like, no. So, you know, something like the day before, right around this time, the official release of LiveView had come out. And of course, it included in the front end offering a way for you to hook into these UI updates to do things like fire just a little bit of your very own custom JavaScript. So like I threw out basically half my talk and kind of put in the new the new way to do it. And that was like kind of a fun, you know, very dynamic last minute change to happen before my ElixirConf talk. And then I was kind of preparing the talk and my initial plan was to give more or less the same talk at the big elixir. But as I was going through it, I was like, you know, absent of all the crazy workarounds that I had to do originally, my talk now just kind of feels like I'm telling you about the documentation. I'm telling you about the things that live you can do, uh, you know, which is fine, especially with the new technology. It's cool to see what it can do and how, but I sort of thought like, I can do better than this. So I was returning to the LiveView documentation and I was sort of trying to mine it for inspiration. And like the very first thing in the doc was this nice opening paragraph. And there's some language in there about how LiveView is just a process. And this is a line that I sort of read and glanced over many times and going through the documentation. But that time I looked at it and I thought to myself, well, what does that really mean? That's, it seems like a throwaway line, but it's really not. Like, where is the process? What part of live view is just a process? How does this actually work? And I think in the past, I've been kind of intimidated to look under the hood at source code for, for whatever tools I've been working with. I think a lot of people feel that way, especially if you're newer to a particular technology or newer to programming overall. But I decided to like try to put some of those feelings aside and I went to the live view source code and I actually found like, huh, I, I can read this. This sort of makes sense. And what I found was the part of it that's just a process is actually kind of just a channel. So I actually saw in the source code a lot of code that looked super, super familiar to me from having just worked with channels and built out Phoenix channels on my own in the past. And that's when I started to really see what was so awesome, honestly, about LiveView, because all that stuff that is sort of onerous to write when you're building a channel-backed feature in Phoenix, you know, you have to set up the socket, join the channel, you know, write the function to handle the join, write all those events going to and from the client and the channel process on the back end, write all this JavaScript to handle the events and update the page. All of that was kind of revealed by LiveView to just basically be boilerplate. So it was cool to realize that I 
can read the source code and, and more or less grok it. It was cool to look at that source code and actually feel like it felt familiar to me having built stuff with channels before. And then from that, really, that's when the, the winds of live view really impress themselves to me. Like you don't have to write the stuff that really does start to feel like boilerplate. You don't have to establish the channel and write all these event handlers um, on the front end. So yeah, that was actually a really fun experience to look under the hood. Hey folks, this is Charles Maxwood and I just launched my book, The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. It's up on Amazon. We self-published it. I would love your support. If you want to go check it out, you can find it there. The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. Have a good one. Max out. I'd love to, um, I'd love to know your perspective now. So you went through that whole thing. Um, I've listened to part of your talk from the Big Elixir, but haven't finished it since it just got published recently. As, as I listened to you kind of going through that discovery process, it made me question, what's the value of in the docs saying something upfront like, oh, this is just a process. Do you, do you think that now if you go back and look at the channels documentation or live view documentation or some other library in the future and, and there is a line where it says something like, this is just a process, does that help to communicate something to you? Um, do you think that is a useful piece of documentation or, or what do you think it's trying to convey? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And I do kind of think about this stuff a lot because having been a teacher, I'm constantly thinking about what is the right way to convey an idea that actually allows people to hook into it a little bit more. And I think it's true that I had read this line many times in working with LiveView and going through the docs and just kind of just flew through it to get to like the good stuff, the how to actually do it. Yeah, I don't know if it, it wasn't as meaningful to me because maybe someone with like even more experience or even more elixir experience that would have been like a more information rich statement to them but it took me a little while to actually wonder what that meant and then go look at the source code i i always think like more is more when it comes to explaining things and i think there's two different types of documentation right of course there's like the nitty-gritty the meat and bones like this is how you use this module this is the api for this class this is how you do the thing but especially in the live view documentation and the phoenix documentation in general, it has the, that really nice kind of front matter often that kind of gives you a little bit of background in the technology that you're using. And I think like, let's go all in, let's do even more, like let's really show people uh, what underlies these technologies, how it really works. Let's not just hint at why something is just a process uh, and let's dig into it a little bit. And I think anytime that I see oh, something is just X, or actually it's really easy to just do Y, that is always a little bit of like whatever the technical writing equivalent of a code smell is. Um, I think, again, having been a teacher, like that's not always the best way to explain something, especially to people that are newer to the technology or that are coming from more of a beginner background because it makes people feel like they don't get something that they should get, you know? Yeah, I've been reading some uh, like Elixir forum posts where and and on subreddit with Eli uh, the Elixir subreddit, there you know people are asking questions like, hey, you know, should I be understanding OTP? I'm I'm coming new. I'm just creating a REST API, but everyone says I should understand OTP. Uh, and it's like, in in some ways, it's it is that struggle of there is a lot here. There is a whole wealth of uh, foundation that Elixir is built on, and you do gain a lot by understanding it. Uh, just because like. You know, when you're working with Live View, you can be in like a, a Live View component or something, uh, you know, a sub piece, and you can just talk to the Live View component by saying send self and knowing that, that it is 
a process. And knowing how process communication works lets you do that and helps you understand why that works. Uh, but it is difficult and, and that is a struggle. It's like, you know, how do you, you know, what is the right order to, to gain knowledge and how do, you, how do you construct that mental model of what's really going on and what is the best way? And that's something, you know, I struggle with too as I, as I try to help teach people too with my uh, Thinking Elixir course too. Yeah, I err on the side of learn OTP quicker just because I think it's really good and it does encapsulate some of the things that you might do poorly just doing process-to-process communication without the structures it puts in place. I, I think I agree with um, as, soon as, as soon as you are reaching for doing process-to-process communication, then learning OTP is, is like, hey, I know it's you know, maybe not exactly what you're planning or, um, or maybe this gets you to, your, to the very next milestone a little bit slower, but it's gonna speed you up for the 10 or 20 milestones after that. Um, I, I still think uh, when people are brand new and if they're like, hey, I'm just trying this out or I would have been doing this in Rails, how would I do that in, uh, in Phoenix? A lot of times I still don't push for going and, and learning more of OTP because if they do have like a really focused thing that doesn't necessarily um, have a inner process or they're not thinking about the concurrency issues around it um, because they're just inside of some other framework that's managing that. Um, a lot of times I won't bring it up uh, at the beginning. I wonder maybe um, if a good way to write this into documentation. So I, I have a library that I helped maintain, which is for um, using uh, a message broker called Nats, which is kind of generally it's used for uh, transient like service to service messages inside of a inside of a safe. I mean, you can have like TLS and everything on it, but um, it's usually used inside of some firewall inside of some group of servers that are collaborating together. And I was kind of wanting to write something like this into my documentation because it is really nice for people who do already know OTP to know that, oh yeah, once your subscription is started, you can do all sorts of stuff like sending yourself a message and your, yourself, your PID won't change uh, in the middle of things. It's gonna be long lived or you can subscribe to stuff uh, and ask other processes to, to send messages back to you and you can receive them by implementing a handle info function. And, and so these are kind of like common patterns that people who are familiar with OTP um, would recognize. And if I can give them some sort of hint that, oh, when you're inside of this thing, you can think of yourself as being inside of a gen server. Um, and that gives people a hint of how to compose on top of my library. But maybe the, maybe the wording of saying it's just a process, it does, I think, come off a little bit um, when I read that, it sounds a little bit like, oh, you should just get this, um, which is not the right message for some people who are, um, a lot of the total people in our community are new. We're, we're growing quickly. That uh, side effect of growing quickly is that most people are new. I will say, um, I think when people are coming new to Elixir and they are coming from something like Rails or uh, you know, Node or something like that, and if, if they're not looking for anything specific like WebSockets or channels, and they just need a, a web backend, which is, I think is a really common thing, then not worrying about OTP is totally okay at that beginning stage because Phoenix and Ecto are, are built on top of OTP and they're going to leverage it and benefit. You get the benefits without having to do any extra work. It's going to be able to handle concurrent requests and, and taking advantage of all the cores and it's going to be pooling your database connections. And so it's like, you're getting a lot of that for free. Um, when you're just coming new. So I wouldn't say like, oh, you can't build something meaningful and solve a problem unless you understand OTP. But, you know, so like, 
I just want, want people to realize that that's okay. You know, start where you are. Yeah, I, I agree with all that. But I also uh, like the thing that got me really excited about Elixir early on was the, the other stuff. You know, I wasn't really looking for personally, hey, how do I build an access database on the web differently? No, I agree. It was the same for me. I was looking for supervisors and concurrency and I was like super enamored with all the things that you can do. So yeah, I totally get that. It's interesting that you mentioned, because I think it's a phrase I hear a lot that like Phoenix and Ecto are built on top of OTP. And I kind of feel like that is the, that's like the Phoenix or the Elixir equivalent of, you know, how people talk about Rails magic. And with my students, whenever we would like finally get to the content on Rails, like, okay, great. Now you're going to build a web application and all the stuff that you had to do when we showed you, you know, Rack and Sinatra, it, you don't have to do that anymore. And people would fall into one of two camps. They would either love it. Great. No more boilerplate. I can just kind of hit the ground running and like make cool stuff. Or group number two would, would be feeling more like, wait a second, what is going on here? How does this actually work? What is going on under the hood? People would really chafe against oftentimes that Rails magic and want to take that deeper dive. And for a while, I sort of wondered what is the Phoenix equivalent of the Rails magic? Like what is the abstract, the level of abstraction or the tooling that people are going to take for granted and not really know what it's doing for them? And I, I do think it is the way that Phoenix leverages OTP to do whatever it is uh, you know, concurrency and connection handling and, and the same for Ecto with the database pool. Um, I would love to see people writing a little bit more uh, accessibly about taking a look under the hood of some of those technologies, which is my plug, by the way, for everyone should write more things about Elixir. And wouldn't you know it, Elixir School would be happy to publish you. Yes, do that. I think the, the documentation for doing Ecto Sandbox in test mode is uh, a lot is strong evidence that your suspicion is correct because um, it, it's amazing how intuitive the API can be and how far you can get using Ecto without really thinking about what it means to have a pool of connections. In a, in a similar way to how far I got using Rails without ever really thinking about the fact that there is a pool of active record connections. Um, and it's really amazing that we can create kind of these layers of abstraction, but, you know, but whenever you need to go around them a little bit or try to run tests in parallel, it's amazing also that in Elixir, we have that option, but the fact that there's documentation around it and a lot of like, if you're going to do this, you know, here's the easy escape patches to not do this. <laughs> That's like option number one, just run tests in, not in parallel here. Uh, and option number two is like, if you still need to run things in parallel and you need the isolation, uh, being inside a transaction, then you need to do these things because it's it's kind of outside the normal the normal flow. Yeah, I I, I liked your point about there there are just going to be cohorts of people who fall into one camp or the other, and and maybe it's not so much. We should just be aware that there are different groups of people with different goals as they come into the language, and uh, and I think for all of us that are trying to do something to increase the adoption of Elixir, it'd be a good idea to keep all of those groups in mind. So Sophie, I wanted to come back to a blog post that you wrote recently about what you've been doing with LiveView. And uh, so you, this is one of those things that you said, hey, write something in, in Elixir School, be happy to post it for you. And so that, that's where your blog post is currently living. So we'll have a link to that. But why don't you kind of tell us what you're exploring with and, and doing there? Yeah, absolutely. So um, this post was also based on some of the work with LiveView that we've been doing at Flatiron for the admin UI I was chatting with you guys about earlier. And um, it was really a pleasure to work with LiveView for this use case, which was sorting a table uh, based on just like whatever column heading and then being able to search it as well. And it's the kind of thing where 
you would just have to write so much JavaScript to do that. But being able to put all that sorting logic on the back end and have the UI kind of just work was really, really awesome to see. It made this feature something that we could deliver in like half a day instead of, I mean, I don't know if you're a lot better at JavaScript than me, maybe it would have taken you half a day too, but it would have taken me longer than half a day. Uh, to make it work without without the live view piece of it. Uh, one thing that was kind of challenging, and I, I did want to chat about this because I'm honestly just curious to hear your guys' thoughts or just to sort of put it out there in the world. I think as we reach for live view more and more and as we get it to handle more and more complex interactions and it's going to need to house more and more business logic. So what I ended up with for this uh, table that was sortable and searchable was like, kind of like a fat live view, if that makes sense. It started to feel like the equivalent of a, of a fat controller that you would want to avoid. And I, I've tried now like so many different ways of kind of peeling this orange, like where can I hide the business logic in my live view to make this a little more palatable. But I want to know like, what is the design that we want to apply to a live view where those interactions are really complex? And what I ended up doing at least for now, as I created a module that I'm calling like my live view state. And really that just kind of hides all the business logic and you just call on it in the handle event functions in the live view. And those kind of become like the input output, uh, you know, the API, the interface of your live view and it sort of just shells out to this state management module. Uh, and that was okay. It made it a little cleaner. You could actually read the live view. It wasn't a million lines long and looking at the state, modules functions kind of tell a story you know they're eloquent they, they describe what their responsibilities are but yeah i don't i feel like i haven't landed on what i feel like is the move here i don't know if anybody else has encountered this or has any opinions my so my preference is basically what you described because it mirrors very closely like if i'm building an lmap i'll have a module that takes the data structure and does all the stuff to it and then i'll have some of those nested in a, in a higher level module and, and pass things down and that's like, it's a very expandable architecture for building more and more complex state. And so that's what I do in, you know, Redux and Elm and what I do in Elixir where I can. So I, re I really like that pattern. We've been recording Ruby Rogue since 2011. And we've talked to a lot of people who have had a really deep influence, not only on the programming community, but also on the Ruby community. And as we've talked to these people, it's become apparent to me that we talk a lot about the things that make them interesting that they've done. But we don't really get into how they got into programming or how they came up in their career, how they got to be the person who invented whatever library or, or technique that they came on the show to talk about. And so I put together a show where we actually highlight these things. We talk to them about how they got into programming. We talk to them about how they got into Ruby, maybe how they got into Rails. We get a little bit deep into what makes them tick and why they are the way they are. And then we talk about what they're working on. We talk about the things that make them well-known or make them interesting. And a lot of times, it's the stuff that goes beyond the code that really makes these people tick and makes them the kind of people that we want to hear about. And so I put together a show called My Ruby Story. You can find it at myrubystory.com. And it's where I interview these people and just get the stories of these people and how they came into programming. So if you want to hear inspirational stories or get ideas on how you can actually advance your career, then go check it out at myrubystory.com. I, I think what's interesting is that you have this idea of, of business logic, right? So I like to take uh, the business logic and have that into a completely separate like, you know, business contexts. Uh, but then you do have business logic that is just surrounding the view. It is around presentation. 
So I think that's kind of the stuff you're talking about, uh, where like, how do I uh, set this up? You know, how do I, how do I manage changes to that state? Uh, because that really is, it's, it is a different type of business logic. It's not so much, you know, what is the relationship of these data, uh, data records and how do I compute these values? It's not, not that kind of stuff. It's more about how do I manage presentation? And so I, I like the idea of um, being able to, you know, like it's the gen server state model that I like to use. It's just taking all of the logic out of a gen server and putting it into a module that is easier to unit test and just manage state transitions. So I like that model that you were describing that you were doing. The other thing I like is working with the, the newer uh, live components and trying to kind of wrap more logic into a component, which makes them more composable and, and even reusable. So that's, that's the kind of direction I've been heading in currently. Actually, as soon as you said that, I just had this epiphany of some refactoring that I need to do. So, yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Mark. Giving out more, more work. <laughs> uh, I'll just plus one quickly. I, I actually don't have a ton of live view experience. Um, so this is a somewhat uninformed opinion. But when Josh was talking, it did, um, it sparked for me a uh, remembrance of the book, uh, Functional, oh, geez, I always forget the name of this book, Functional Web Development with Elixir, OTP, and Phoenix. All right, there, it's that one. Um, at the beginning of that book, uh, Lance walks through building um, essentially the game Battleship without using the word Battleship because it's trademarked. Sorry, whoever owns that for saying the name of it on a podcast. Uh, and But uh, he basically does that same technique. So he has one module that defines a struct. That struct is kind of the overall state of the game, but a lot of the values inside that struct are other small structs and they represent like the sub parts of the game. And then you kind of just have this functional API where if you say, hey, a user just tried to do this thing and here is the current state, it will handle kind of like breaking it apart, making whatever changes need to happen and then returning the new updated big thing. Uh, and at least that lets you, it gives you a good way to decompose the logic on one side. And then on the rendering side of your live view component, you could decompose that with other things like helpers uh, or, um, you know, having different uh, templates that you're rendering along the way, you could have like partials, kind of an idea. But it does still mean that you have this big integration point in the design where uh, you've kind of like pulled all the state back together into one big state, and then you have to kind of unfold it down the other side. And um, I'm interested to work on components because I think they give a, an option there, like what Mark's saying, where they encapsulate more of their own stuff on the inside. And I see the same sorts of things happening in the world of scenic where there's kind of, there's kinds of these patterns of um, sometimes you, you put another component inside of your scene and the idea is for that component to handle its own life cycle, to handle its own messages and stuff like that. But in other times you kind of just want to compose things together in a functional way. And they seem to be similar trade-offs. Yeah. I think the thing I'm struggling with, I haven't done much with the live view components, but I took a stab at, some refactoring using components yesterday that I ended up abandoning. Uh, and I feel like what I ran up against was, and I think maybe I had the wrong use case for them, just to try to put it simply, I had like the, the search form as sort of be, being its own component and then the table that displayed the results, like all of the whatever messages that you had queried for separately. But then it didn't work because I wanted to share the messages, the results of the search from like they were on the same level, but they needed to share state. So I feel like that's not 
maybe what they're for because I couldn't get that working or I couldn't wrap I my will head mention, around it quite. Uh, one other thing that we've been doing uh, and we've been having a lot of success with this. So this is a very new thing. I can talk about it later as we continue to experiment with it and see how successful we like it over time. But so there is a talk that uh, I really liked. We've talked about it on the podcast before. I'm putting the show notes. It is Andrew Howe talking about using Phoenix contexts. And he's really talking about domain-driven design. And just a lot of it is, comes down to the practice of how I conceptually break down a problem into uh, logical areas and, and, and pieces. And so one of the things we've de- been doing is creating aggregates. So an aggregate is a, not an ectoschema. It is a struct that it might even be an ectoschema struct, but it's not a database one. And because a lot of times your front end wants, you know, Phoenix wants like a, for a form, it wants a, an ectoschema. Uh, so we're using this as an aggregate kind of to represent, so like if we have a list of clients, uh, then we have a special context that says, I, this is my, you know, my list of clients kind of context, which knows that I want to pull and join tables from other, join data from other tables and put them all together into this aggregated uh, object. And that's what we've been kind of working with. So it takes a lot of that business logic and kind of keeps, keeps anything out of my, my, my database stuff out of my views. And it makes it so I have uh, another layer there. Uh, so I would not say, you know, if you're just getting started and you're wanting to like just build like a, you know, CRUD style REST application, don't do that. It's, it's more work than you need. But for what we're doing, it's, it's helping us solve problems and keep nice delineated lines. So aggregates are fun to uh, explore. Yeah, it's interesting. We've, we've done something similar um, with the app that I've been chatting about where we do have some live view in the mix. And uh, yeah, you run up against the same thing that you mentioned with forms want to uh, change that. But instead, we've extended the um, protocol for forms with just like kind of hijacking it for whatever aggregate struct that we've created. And yeah, that's another thing where I'm like, okay, that's a lot of code that we had to write to get that working. Maybe it should just be a change set, but it's been cool to puzzle through some of that stuff. Yeah, so I think one thing I just want to point out here uh, is is that Phoenix and Elixir, Phoenix specifically, like Rails is very opinionated. When you want to step outside of the norm, you are punished and you know, it, you're fighting against the grain. Uh, but what I really love about Phoenix is you can do these kinds of things. You can make these changes and it is more malleable. So I appreciate that. So I'm curious, Sophie, you mentioned uh, earlier that you, uh, you, know, you went to great lengths to do all this stuff in backend server code because you hate front-end code. Uh, I'm just curious as to like, maybe how you compare LiveView to anything else you might have had experience with, either server rendered or whatever. Yeah, I don't want to come off as like too whatever overzealous about disliking front end code. It's not, you know, it's not the type of challenges that tend to get me the most excited. But um, I've had maybe I've been burned a little bit by like overly complex Redux apps. And so I feel like working with LiveView has been a breath of fresh air. So I think the worst experience I had, and this really wasn't Redux's fault. There were a lot of problems going on with this particular project, but I and a coworker of mine worked for like eight months on this really, really complicated form. It was just a form that we were building out with Redux. Um, 
And there were, you know, it was complicated for a reason. It was a complicated feature to build. This is when I was working at TuneCore, which is like a music distribution platform. And we were tasked with creating this form that would somehow capture all of the different combinations of information that an artist could use to describe their album so that we could possibly send this content to like every single online store. So every combination of information you could possibly imagine that Amazon would require, Google Play or iTunes or Spotify or whatever, all in one easy to use form. So the task itself was was very complex. And then we just ended up throwing like so much Redux at it for months and months and months. And actually at the time that I left that position and came back to Flatiron and joined the engineering team, that uh, feature still had not shipped, although I was told that it had since shipped. So. I think what ended up feeling so frustrating and painful about that project was that I felt like trying to deal with all of these scenarios and all of different complex ways that this logic could play out in Redux, it just made it really hard to reason about. And being able to lay that out in these really clear, you think of LiveView as like inputs and outputs. It's very clear, like you're handling an event and you're updating state. And I think you could probably boil Redux down to like that same sort of concept. But for me, it was much harder to reason about something that complex. In Redux, it was easier to overcomplicate it with lots and lots of code, um, just figuring out how to manage state within individual React components and then for the entirety of the Redux app. And I haven't yet found that same like difficulty in reasoning come up in working with LiveView. Cool. Well, thank you for sharing that. I agree. Um with a lot of what you said there, just like having worked on larger Vue.js and React.js and front ends, uh, that, that the detangling of state management and all of the transitions from the different layers that you'd had to do otherwise with, you know, converting it into JSON and serializing it that way and then deserializing it on the client into, and then working, sending it back, you know, just a lot of that just simplifies it. Well, I think that's a great time to kind of wrap that up and let's move to picks. Josh, do you have one? I do have one, and it is from, well, let me see. I can't seem to type into the chat. Anyway, it is uh, a post from the company Purism, and it's the hardware schematics for their Linux phone that they've released, and I just think it's really neat. So I'll share that. Cool. Michael? Two, two quick picks. Uh, the first one I just stumbled across as um, we were talking earlier about Erlang distribution ports and all that. Uh, I found uh, an old archived uh, mailing list entry from the Erlang mailing list back from 2002. Joe Armstrong responding to somebody who was trying to forward ports uh, via a web or via a local router in their house and was running into some problems. And just seeing Joe respond to this in his typical um, you know, somewhat playful uh, and friendly and supportive way. And it just is totally making me miss Joe today. So um, wanted to share that. And then the other one is a Wikipedia article that I kind of stumbled across the other night when I was having an, an interesting conversation uh, about brains. And um, I found this Wikipedia article that ranks differing animals based on the number of neurons overall in their body and also based on the number of neurons specifically in their forebrain. And I'll just leave the teaser that humans are not at the top of either one of those lists. And so uh, if you're into that kind of stuff, it was, it was a fun read and, and led to a lot of random Wikipedia articles and, and conversation. That's it for um, me. 
That sounds fun. All right, I've got two. Uh, one is, it's a movie. Uh, I watched it on Amazon Prime on their streaming service. It's called That Sugar Film. And it is really entertaining because it's like, you know, it's about food and food science and uh, sugar and all of how our diet has changed culturally and kind of like the catalysts that made that happen. What I like though is it's not like a preachy documentary. It's very entertaining and educational. And uh, my wife and I really like that. Uh, and I've been sharing it with friends. So that one's a fun one. The other one is the US legal system. Woohoo! I like trial by jury. Uh, so recently, uh, just last week, I was called to jury duty. That's the first time I've ever had jury duty. And just through this whole process, I grew an appreciation for uh, how the legal system works, the presumption of innocence. And I realized that if I were ever caught in a situation where, you know, something had gone wrong and now I was being blamed for perhaps something I did do wrong, but maybe a lot more that I didn't, you know, I would want someone like me, a normal person to be uh, involved in helping to, you know, hear my side. So I just, yay for the U.S. legal system. It's not perfect, but the, that, that, that basic tenant I really appreciate. Sophie, how about you? I'll definitely plus one your sugar movie pick. That is really a very interesting film. Definitely recommend that. Uh, I would love to recommend, there were so many great talks at the Big Elixir. I think people should go watch all of them if you have the time, but there are one or two in particular that I really enjoyed. Uh, so one of them was... Bruce Park's talk on metaprogramming eSpec, like doing kind of like a little rebuild of, of eSpec with his own metaprogramming code. And then a really fun talk from Todd Rezadek, I think is how you say his name, on myths and hacks, which he has termed the power couple of the Elixir community. That was really eye-opening. Great. Well, thank you, Sophie, for coming on. It's been a pleasure talking with you. If people want to get in touch with you or follow you online, where should they go to do that? Uh, I'm on Twitter. You can find me on Twitter, which is a super long last name. So my Twitter handle is really long. SM underscore D Benedetto. That's D E B E N E D E T T O. Um, that's probably a good place to find me. Yeah. Check the show notes for that. So you don't get it wrong. Yeah. And that's it for today. Thank you for listening. And we hope you'll join us next week on Elixir Mix. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.